0: Hello listeners, Janine here. This is a brief message to let you know that in this episode on why people are obsessed with true crime, we will be discussing some potentially distressing content for some listeners.
1: Hello, I'm Alina. Hello, I'm Janine. We're two sisters, two PhDs, relentlessly
0: curious about too many things. This is Sister Doctor Squared.
1: To get started we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording this episode and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Hi
0: Janine, how are you? Hi Alina, I am good, how are you? Pretty good. Are you ready to get into this today? I'm ready. So today's episode is all around why are we so obsessed with true crime? So as you know, the true crime genre is incredibly popular across all types of media, so print, movies, documentaries and increasingly so podcasts. But why, Alina, why? Yes, I'm a fan myself. Yes, why are so many people drawn to these distressing and often gruesome tales? And Alina, why have I spent so many hours listening to true crime podcasts? (laughs) And I mean, honestly, sometimes I wonder if this is a healthy and sensible thing to be doing with my time. Yes, I've thought the same thing. So we really wanted to look and see what we could find. What evidence is out there around people's motivations for engaging with this kind of stuff? So how did you go, Alina? I must say there was a lot less in the scientific literature on
1: this than I was expecting. Yes, I agree. But there was a, f- a few interesting papers and the one that caught my eye was published in 2018 in the American Behavioral Scientist. And it's by Jack Levin and Julie Weist. And this was all about coverage of mass murder in the media mm-hmm. and what effect the focus of these news stories has on reader interest. So typically, news stories of mass murder have quite high coverage in the media. Coverage of mass murder stories often centers on the perpetrator publishing the name, perhaps photos, and even self-serving statements from the perpetrator at times. And the problem with this is that it fulfills that perpetrator's desire for fame. Mm. And there are campaigns like the No Notoriety campaign that are pushing for news outlets to stop publishing information about perpetrators, Because if you deprive the perpetrators of that notoriety, then it's a disincentive for other people to commit these sorts of crimes in future. Mm. So maybe you only publish information about the perpetrator if they are on the run, perhaps, uh, and Mm -hmm. spreading that information may help to secure their arrest. But otherwise, maybe it's just serving their desire for notoriety and not actually doing any good. Now... News media outlets may be reluctant to stop publishing detailed information about perpetrators of mass murders if they feel that this will negatively impact their ratings Mm -hmm. and readership. But the assumption here is that it is the information about the perpetrator that is what's driving interest in these stories. So Levin and Weist wanted to actually test this to see, are we interested in news stories of mass murder because of the focus on the perpetrator or are we interested in these stories despite the focus on the perpetrator? Mm. And is it something else that's driving our interest? Because if so, this could have important implications for the way that mass murder news stories should be framed. Mm -hmm. So the group was also interested in what effect inherent fear of mass murder has on interest in these stories as well as age and gender. Okay, so gender, age, fear, and focus of the news story were what they set out to test. So this was an online study among 212 adults in the US aged 35 to 44 years. And there was a gender split representative of the US population. So first, the researchers measured fear of mass murder by asking the participants, in the last year, how often they felt anxious or afraid that they or someone they love could become a victim of a mass killer. Mm -hmm. And the participants answered on a scale from never, rarely, sometimes, pretty often, and almost constantly. Then the participants were randomly assigned to view one of three almost identical news stories covering a high school shooting. So these were fictional stories. They were created by the research team, but the participants didn't know that not until after they were they had completed the study. So as far as the participants knew while they were doing the study that this high school shooting was a real event. Mm-hmm. Now each of the three news stories had the same layout, same images, uh, same quote from a student and the same major headline, which was mass murder at school. The stories were mostly identical except for the focus of the story. So in one group the focus was on the perpetrator In another group, the focus was on one of the victims, and in the third group, the focus was on a hero student who stopped the attack. So one of the ways that the stories varied was through the secondary headline, which was one of details emerge about life of killer, or new information about first victim, or meet hero who stopped it.
0: Right. So in, so in the research paper that you read, do they actually show you what these news stories looked like?
1: Yes. Oh, so cool. in the paper, you can actually see each version of the story that the participants viewed. Right. So it's in the published article. So one of the, there's an image of a teenage male. It's the same image across all three versions of the story, mm. but the caption varies to say whether he was the shooter,
0: a victim or the hero. Wow. So it's very robust design then. It's a really
1: neat study mm. and a very well controlled experiment. Nice. And so these stories were essentially like a newspaper front cover Mm -hmm. and they stated that the full story was inside. Mm. So the participants had been told they would be asked a few questions about this cover story that they'd been presented. Now once they'd read this cover, to gauge interest in reading the full story, they could choose one of three options. So they could answer the questions and skip reading the full story entirely which would indicate that they weren't interested in reading the full story. They could answer the questions then and there and then after that decide if they wanted to read the full story and that was deemed neutral interest or they could go straight to the full story and answer the questions after. And that was the proxy for being interested in the full story. Mm -hmm. So what did they find? First of all, most participants, around 60%, were interested in reading the full news story. So, this is across the story Mm -hmm. focus categories. Yep. Now, when they analysed the differences between the story focus, participants were significantly more interested in reading the full story when they'd been shown the story focused on the hero who stopped the attack Mm
0: -hmm. than
1: the participants who were shown either the story that focused on the perpetrator or on the victim. And there was no difference in interest between the perpetrator and victim stories. Oh, okay. So the
0: participants that were showing the hero sh- story, what percentage of them wanted to keep reading? Was it close to 100%? It was around 73% oh,
1: okay. wanted to read the the full story. So almost three quarters and that right. compared to it was around 52 and 56% in the victim and murderer-focused story groups respectively. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So – it's a meaningful difference, certainly. Definitely. So obviously it seemed that the story of the hero was what was most interesting, and that's really the key finding here. Now, in terms of fear of mass murder, which they also measured, people were fairly evenly split according to fear, so they split these groups at the median to create a fearful group and a non-fearful group, and the fearful group was more interested in reading the full story than the non-fearful group. Mm. And then in terms of age... The older participants were more interested in reading the full story than the younger participants. Uh, Again, they split this at the median to create two age groups and it was the 39 to 44-year age group that was more interested in the full story compared to the group in more than mid-30s. Now, gender didn't seem to matter, so women and men were similarly interested in reading the full story. Right. And in this study, there was no interactions. So they didn't find that, say, there was an interaction between age and fear or fear and story focus Mm -hmm. or gender and story focus when Mm -hmm. it came to interest in reading the full story. So what does it all mean, Janine? Mm. In terms of the story focus, this study suggests it's not the details of the mass murderer Mm -hmm. and their actions and motivations that really drive interest in mass murder stories, because here, people were more interested in the story where these details were omitted, mm. and instead the focus was on the hero, their actions and motivations in stopping further escalation yes. of this school shooting. And as the authors explained, perhaps the reason for this is stories about the hero provide useful information about avoiding becoming a victim yourself.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And how to stop these sorts of events if you yourself were ever in that situation. Mm. So, these sorts of stories inspire and better equip people to respond in a similar way, as opposed to stories that focus more on the threat, so the murderer, mm. without offering any kind of solution or any sense of a silver lining, and that something practical can be learned from a really horrible event. Mm. So, obviously, for news coverage, this study would certainly suggest that media outlets can and should switch focus to the heroes or, say, the first responders to mass murder events and that doing so would not necessarily affect ratings and readership and, indeed, it could increase. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Exactly. And it also might serve as a disincentive to the act of mass murder by, as I said, taking away that notoriety that Mm -hmm. perpetrator-focused news crime
0: stories offer. Yes. So what I take from your study is that people – will engage better with a crime news story if they feel they can learn something from it rather than if it's just instilling fear or uncertainty. That's right. And it seems that they're wanting to increase feelings of control or learn some useful defence strategies.
1: Exactly. And now just on that, so you might be wondering why was there a difference in interest according to fear of mass murder? Mm. Well, they're expecting this to be the case based on previous research Um, That points to a protective role of crime news. So very similar to what we've already been talking about in that exposure to crime stories, whether the focus is on victims, heroes or perpetrators, Mm -hmm. helps people to feel that they can learn something about avoiding becoming a victim themselves. Yes. So it's like we have an underlying interest in crime stories to help protect ourselves, but perhaps we're particularly interested when there is very explicit information about mm. and, say, inspiration to mm. avoid or avert it. Yes. And now. The participants in their 40s were more interested in reading the full story also, I mentioned. Now, the authors didn't go into much detail about this, but they suggested that perhaps this is because this age group is more likely to have high school-aged children, Mm -hmm. and so perhaps they were more interested in reading the story as a way of protecting their own children.
0: So there you go. Very interesting. It really leads in very well to the paper that I read, particularly around that aspect that you've alluded to around the levels of fear. So the study that I read was by Vickery and Fraley and published in 2010 in the journal Social, Psychological and Personality Science. And they investigated the true crime genre specifically as non-fiction books so okay. moving away from live news coverage and into the nonfiction genre. So they did a series of five separate experiments to really get at why is this genre so appealing. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. They really packed a lot into this paper. So I'll work through each of the studies. So study one was sort of like a preliminary study because it seemed that they had noticed a gender difference in the reviews written on the Amazon books website. Okay. So they noticed a lot more women tended to be providing reviews for the true crime nonfiction book genre than oh, men. Really? So they went and actually did a little bit of a study based around this. So they just went and found the top twenty five books in the true crime genre. And then they wanted to compare that to another, let's say, violent genre, so they chose the war genre. So they got the 25 books from the true crime genre and the war genre and then coded the numbers of reviews that were done by women versus men for each of those genres. Does that make sense? It does. How, how could they be sure
1: uh, whether the reviewer was male or female? Yes.
0: So, they mentioned that they only used data where it was unambiguous. So, they, I think they had some examples like Miss Molly or Mike Love's books. So, if it was truly unambiguous, they put them in the study. Okay. So, they indeed did find a significant effect of gender. So, they found that 70% of the reviews for the true crime were written by women. So, only 30% of these reviews were by men. Okay. And this was a significant difference. Whereas when they looked at the war genre, they found that 82% of the reviews were written by men. Okay. Okay. So then in study two, this was an online study really aiming to confirm the initial findings from that Amazon review study. So this study had over 1,000 participants and the participants were asked to imagine that they were visiting a bookstore They had a choice of two non-fiction books and they were each given the title of the book and a short summary of the book and then asked which would they prefer to take home. So the title of the first book was Violence in Paradise, A True Account of the Murders That Shocked Hawaii. And the summary given was that this was a true story about two murdered women. And then the participants were shown another book. And now this was not from the true crime genre. It was another violent genre again. So again, the war genre. So the title for the second book was Dangers of War, A True Story of an Army Unit Serving in the Gulf War. And the summary was that this was the true account of two female soldiers' missions during the Gulf War. So then they compared the differences between men and women and found that for females, 77% chose the true crime book and only 23% chose the Gulf War book. And this was a very significant effect. But for males, there was no difference. So, it was 51 versus 49% comparing true crime to the war book. So, pretty clear indication at this point that there seems to be a gender influence here. Females being more drawn to the true crime genre. Mm. So, then the remaining three studies were all trying to look at why. So, they came up with some hypotheses around why women may be drawn more to this true crime genre Their hypotheses were all around whether females are seeking information around how to avoid or survive such a crime. And this links in very well with what you found in your study, Alina. Right, it does. So study three was the authors asking the question, is this interest because women want to learn defence strategies specifically? So they did another online study and this time they had 13,000 participants and they were asked again to choose between two true crime books. So now they're both true crime. So, the first option was Danger in Denver, the true story of an escape from a killer. And then the second book was Turmoil on Thunder Trail, the true story of a confrontation with a killer. So, two true crime story titles. Then they were given a brief summary. Now, one of the summaries that went with the book outlined was that the attacked woman had used a trick that she'd learned from the internet to escape she had used the pin from her watch to unpick the handcuffs. Now the really clever part of this study, I think, was that they mixed up which book was paired with that description of the trick. So some women were seeing that trick being lumped in with the Danger in Denver book, and other women were seeing it matched in with the Turmoil on Thunder Trail book. And what they found was that having this information around the trick significantly affected the preferences. So, here they found that 71% of women would choose the book that had that summary of the trick. Okay. And that was a significant effect. But interestingly, they also had a look in the sample of men and they also found that men were more likely to choose the book with the trick as well, but the actual number was not as high. So, then study four was them asking a similar question. Do women engage with true crime because they wish to understand why may- people may turn to crime? So again, they were asked to choose between two true crime books, but only one of the books contained a summary that there would be information inside around an interview with the killer where they were trying to ascertain the motives. Right. So getting really into this psychology of their actions. That's Right. So for the book that had the information that may provide some insight into the killer's motives, they had a significant number of women, 65% wanting to read that book. And again, they also found that men were more likely to choose the book with that extra psychological information, but not as many as for women. And then their final study was to ask the question, are women engaging with this media because the victims are often female? So here they tested this question by asking participants to choose again between two different crime books, and what they did was change the gender of the victim, and they found that women were significantly more likely to choose the book with a female victim as compared to a male victim. And interestingly for male participants, there was no effect on the gender of the victims. They were equally likely to choose either book. Okay, how interesting. Yes. So the overall conclusion here, I think the findings are very interesting. Uh, Particularly, I would highlight that your study, Alina, found no difference between men and women, and the authors note in my study that some previous work has shown that men are actually more likely than women to be the victims of crime in general, but the authors do point out that women do indeed have a heightened level of fear of crime when compared to men, and that women are often the victims of serious crimes like serial killings and abductions with the intent to kill. So, whereas in your study, the topic was mass shootings at school, where there's equal probability that males and females may be the victims. Yeah,
1: that's right. And that's that's something that that paper discussed as well, is that for that particular type of crime, it's equally relevant, I guess, to yes. men and women.
0: Yes, yes. And so, I think my study does really demonstrate that there is a difference between women and men in terms of the true crime book genre. But the authors did point out that it doesn't mean that true crime is every woman's favorite genre. What they are showing is that if you are faced with a choice of true crime versus other violent genres, so war, they also had another book in part of the study around gang warfare When women are faced with this choice, they tend to go for the true crime. So I think it would be pretty interesting. As you mentioned, Alina, we didn't find as much out there in the literature as expected, but it would be very interesting to see if these findings hold true for other media like podcasts where this true crime genre is becoming extremely popular. Yes, I think there is some a growing body of
1: research Mm. around podcast listenership that would be interesting to get into.
0: Definitely. Well, it seems that there are several reasons why women were drawn to the genre, which were illuminated in my study. Uh, And it did seem that many of these were true for men too, but to a lesser extent. One of the key motivators seems to be the potential to learn some defence or survival strategies. And they also had that idea around people wanting to understand the psychology behind the crimes. So perhaps in an effort to see maybe warning signs and predict if anyone around them could be a threat. That's
1: certainly something that draws me into
0: crime stories, whether they're fictional
1: or non-fictional. It's the psychology behind Mm. it. Obviously, I studied psychology, so that's (laughs) that's
0: clearly my interest. That's right. But I think bringing it into what I studied, so I think there could be a component of evolutionary fitness here because an associated survival of engaging with this material. But it was interesting that the authors pointed out that some people could get trapped in a bit of a cycle where they're engaging with this due to some general sense of fear around potentially becoming a victim and they're engaging with it in order to learn something and feel safer. But exposure to this type of information could actually make them feel less safe and compel them to engage with it more and more which may heighten their levels of anxiety and so on. So I thought that was an interesting point and I wondered if I'm getting trapped in that cycle myself. (laughs) (laughs) You need to strike a balance. That's right.
1: Well, very interesting. I think we've both covered some very complementary studies that have shed some light on what really draws people in to Mm. these these stories of crime, and sometimes I think this can be a very unconscious process and sometimes it's more of a conscious process. It's very fascinating.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: So with the research that we've identified, the focus has been more on violent forms of crime and not so much on other forms of crime where the stories of these might be equally fascinating for many
0: people. Yes, like con artists, fraudsters, Oh, what was that? You know the, that lady? There were all those podcasts around, you know, the blood lady? Oh, Elizabeth Holmes. Yes, yes, yes. Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you doing a voice like that? Don't, haven't you seen all the stuff about her voice? No. So she's got this really, really deep baritone voice and there's a lot of controversy around whether it was her real voice or not and that she may have faked her voice to get further.
1: Oh, to sound more authoritative. Wow, that was part... Mm, I did not know that. Lowering one's voice tangents aside, I think we can assume that it might very well be the ex- similar kinds of reasons that draw people into stories of fraudsters and scammers is that desire to avoid it happening to you.
0: Yes, to understand how did this happen to someone else? Could this happen to me? That's right. Now for something completely different. Indeed. Janine... What brought out
1: your inner square recently?
0: Well, as you will recall, in the last episode, we were discussing our concerns around the transparency of word inclusion in uh, Scrabble and Words with Friends. Now, do you remember that we discussed that the gender neutral pronoun Z was yet to be included in the Words with Friends dictionary? Of course. Do you have an update? Sort of. So I just wanted to let you know that I did contact words with friends and I've got here a printout of what they replied with. Would you like to hear oh, that? Oh, wow. Mm. I know. I'm very organised. So, hi, Janine. Thank you for taking the time to send the word you want to suggest. No worries. I've already noted this for our team's reference in updating the game's dictionary word list. Oh, nice. In the meantime, I've granted 50 coins and one power-up. Oh, wow. Of each kind as a token of our appreciation for being one of our loyal players. Have a nice day. <laughs> now, look, I don't personally use the tokens and power-ups. What? I do. I never do. I prefer to play using my own brain. Oh, such a purist.
1: (laughs) I know. But this is so exciting. Not only have they acknowledged
0: your Mm. request, but they've given you rewards for it too. Yes. And, you know, I read a lot into this because she said, I've already noted this. So that suggests to me that it's not, I'm not even the first person to to well, mention Well, I doubt this word. it. But that is disappointing. Like, come on, get on with it, people. What are you doing? Well, but it's also
1: great that other people have sent in the same suggestion. That's right. Well, that's exciting. Keep us posted.
0: I will. So, I mean, every time there is an opportunity for me to try and play that word, I am trying. It's still not letting me play it. Mm. But, oh, you'll know about it when I'm allowed to play it. Perhaps next episode. <laughs> we shall see. So, that was just a little update. Now... I've been assisting my little boy, he's 8 years old, and also some younger students with their learning with a focus on early literacy strategies. And as you may remember, in early on in school there is a huge focus on learning to write and students have to practice their letter and number formation. And they so they spend a lot of time on this handwriting every week. I don't know if you do remember though that the exact forms of the letters and numbers are very very particular and the students are expected to form them correctly at school. Do you remember this from primary school? Oh, vaguely. Well, I wanted to make sure the resources that I'm creating match in with what the students are expected to be doing, right? So I did a little bit of investigating, and it turns out you can download fonts which match with the actual school-level handwriting fonts. Wow. So of course I did this. But what was very interesting, Alina, is that there is a different font depending on which state in Australia you go to school in. Oh, yes. So I downloaded for us in Queensland, the font is called Q Beginners. But do you think I, I stopped there, Alina? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wanted to know why, why is there not one standard way of writing an A and a B? Across Australia. So, I had a very good look at what's happening in South Australia and Victoria, New South Wales, and etc. And you'll be very surprised to know that there were quite a lot of differences. Now, I'm going to put this up on the website. I'll put up a little link so people can have a look because I know everyone will be as excited as I was to go and check this out. I don't know, Janine. <laughs> so, for example, a lowercase q. If I'm to write a lowercase q, I do, you know, like the little A sort of curly loopy bit. And then you go down and it goes up to a very clear pointy tick, yeah? Yeah. Now, in some states, oh, no, Alina, it is not. It is a curl like the bottom of a G or a J. Right. How weird is that? Yeah. So, of course, this got my square on and I spend a lot of time pondering who decides the correct way to write Q and why is it different in each state of Australia and what do letters look like in other countries. And really, at the end of the day, I want to know which is the correct way to do. All of these things because my eight-year-old is always pointing out that my letters are incorrect and it's driving me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's exceptionally squary. I know. So if anyone out there wants to download these fonts, I'll put a link up, of course, on the website. Thank you. <laughs> Great. I know you're well- going use
1: it. <laughs> I promise you I won't. But <laughs> look, my inner square is a complete departure from that. Okay. I was recently – happened to be chatting with – Dad, our dad, yeah. while preparing a roast dinner. Right. Now, he does like to cook a roast. He does. It's his go-to. He's really bit he's really fan. great at it. I'm a fan, but we've always butted heads on the practice of resting meat. Mm. So, this is taking the meat away from the heat source and mm. just leaving it to rest mm, for a mm. little bit before you cut into it. Now, the conventional wisdom here is that resting meat is really important and mm. will help to preserve the juices and keep <laughs> the meat moist. <laughs> Our dad disagrees and he's always thought this resting meat nonsense is just crap and he doesn't do it and I can't convince him. So I thought, well, I'm going to go reading about this and I'll send him some scientific information and maybe that will convince him because I can't. So if you go searching for information about resting meat, you'll find plenty of stuff about why it's important and guidance for how long to rest meat for based on the type of meat and the cooking times, etc. Mm-hmm. etc. Cetera, et cetera. But you might also find a few pieces that say that resting meat is all a myth. Really? Yeah. Intrigued by this, I followed that trail <laughs> and I found myself on AmazingRibs.com, <laughs> which is founded by author Meathead Goldwyn. And Meathead Goldwyn wrote The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling. Okay. And on his website, AmazingRibs.com, Meathead has written an article to say that resting meat is a huge mistake. It just makes the meat cold. It may lead to overcooking because it continues cooking while it's resting and the fats start to harden and you just shouldn't do it. Uh And Meathead had his (laughs) science advisor, Professor Greg Blonder, Okay. Do some experiments to test out the theory about preserving juices. And according to Professor Blonder, yes, unrested meat does lose more juice than rested meat. Okay. But the difference is inconsequential. (laughs) And he says that rested meat had a teaspoon more juice than the unrested meat and it ends up on your plate anyway and it's mostly reabsorbed into the meat while you're eating it. And meanwhile, you get to eat hot meat that hasn't overcooked. Uh So, look, this isn't a peer-reviewed scientific study, (laughs) but that's where I ended up and I'm just questioning everything (laughs) about life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, now, have you (laughs) you eaten your words with Dad yet?
1: (laughs) Well, I had to save face given what I'd found and take a very diplomatic approach. I'm not one to selectively report back only the information that was consistent with what I already thought to be the case. So I think I just sent him two links, including the meathead one, and said that there appears to be some opposing views on this and left it at that. I didn't say I was right or wrong or express, you know, my inner turmoil on the matter because I don't know anymore, Janine. (laughs) rest your meat. Don't rest your meat. Who cares? Who cares? Nothing matters. Maybe meathead is right. (laughs) Maybe our dad is right. His roast is delicious. It is
0: very nice. I'm not sure why I'm asking him
1: to change anything.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's funny. So, I guess it's time to wrap up thanks so much for joining us. Details of the studies we've talked about will be available on our website, which is www.sisterdoctorsquared.com with all words spelt in full. And you can follow along on Facebook and Twitter, and we'd love to connect with you. And if something really got your square on recently, do get in touch and let us know. And yes, we will also include in the show notes, the link to (laughs) MeatheadGoldwyn's
1: AmazingRibs.com website.
0: And the font comparison, the all-important font comparison. Thank
1: you. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Bye.